Hello, 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 and welcome to the second official episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Today, we're going to be talking about economic growth, or as a tagline, uh, as a tagline for this episode that I have here, how we, open quotes, sell out, close quotes, for prosperity. So, by way of introduction, undeniably, the general standard of living across the world has grown tremendously uh, in recent years due to vast improvements in technology, resulting in great leaps in productivity and economic growth. So this growth has allowed people to experience a much higher standard of living and improved material wealth. Right? For instance, this is most clearly seen in China, where GDP has exploded from around 60 billion USD in 1960 to around 11 trillion dollars today in 2015. Well, not today, but two years ago. So this is this makes it the second highest uh, GDP in the world behind the United States. So also related to China, 56% of their population use smartphones, and more than 55% of citizens today live in big urban cities. So similarly. Such gains can be seen back home in Singapore, where GDP per capita has increased from, you know, relatively measly four, around 430 uh, USD back in 1960 to just about 53,000 USD in 2015 on a nominal basis. You know, and also you got to consider life, expect- life expectancy here has improved tremendously. Back in 1960, it was only around 66 years. But nowadays, it's uh, 83 years, actually, in 2014. However, so because nothing comes for free in economics, there is this famous saying that there is no free lunch. We know that every, for every dollar earned in society's quest for economic prosperity, something else is sort of lost along the way. You can think about it in, in just a simple transaction. You know, if you want to get something, if you want to purchase, for example, uh, a drink or a can of coke, you got to give something in return, right? Well, economic growth is no different, but what do we give up in return? So, however, how much do we really know about the other side of this economic growth, right? Is there anything so valuable that we should not really be giving up? Is there, is there maybe a line or a threshold that we should not cross? Or more even more, fundam- more fundamentally, how do we decide to embark on economic growth? Or is it a more naturally occurring process? Or are we, you know, maybe corralled by some state or some uh, big authority towards this goal of economic prosperity? So in this episode, I'll be experimenting, uh, experimenting with a little different show format than uh, what I did in the first episode, where it was kind of lengthy. I approached it sort of uh, with a big, broad topic. I hit a lot of different points. I used a lot of examples here and there. It was, it was very time-consuming to do the research, but it was also very taxing on the listener. So I'm going to try a different approach today that, that attempts to answer sort of the questions that I laid out earlier by looking at case examples. So we're going to be looking at three uh, hopefully interesting examples today. So this format allows me to cut down on the length of the show, as well as take a look at reality from a more ground-up approach, where I sort of explore these economic concepts through, through the day-to-day examples, so to make it more relatable to our audience and to make it more in line with the theme of uh, this podcast, which is to 
serve the grains of capitalism, right? The little bits and pieces that that we all experience each day. All right, so uh, let's jump right into it. We're going to look at the first case here. The first case uh, I want to look at today involves an interesting story. Uh, this is from a podcast, and this podcast was produced by BBC Radio 4. It's called the Seriously Podcast. So in this particular episode, uh, the, 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 the narrator, or, or what they normally call the producer, uh, his name is Cole Morton. So he goes back to his roots in the east end of London in search of a, a unique accent that his grandmother once had. So if you were if you're a bit of familiar with London culture, this might be a bit relatable to you. If you were from London or you used to study there, or you were sort of an Anglophile, you you love the culture. You know, this might be a a, a bit of a particular interest to you. So so this this uh, this accent that his grandmother had was something that he described as being half Cockney, half Queen. So Cockney being the sort of accent indigenous to the East. Uh, east end of London, but the Queen being more of the the posh language, or sort of more uh, kind of uh, English that you, the sort of more British accent that you're more familiar with, whether through through television or through you know your movies. So this producer, in turn, throughout the episode, he becomes sort of philosophical and wary of the fact that the Cockney accent may soon die out in the new near future due to factors such as immigration or gentrification. Right. Further, he reflects that one reason for the dying out of the accent may be due to the perception of lower class upbringing that it holds. Or to look at it from a diff- from a different point is that a posh accent could lead to more better economic opportunities. So this sort of mentality is like a, a dress for success idea, right? Like if you want to join the ranks of society, you want to try and look the part, you want to try and dress the way, and maybe and, and maybe in in um from his point of view, society had this idea that. If you want to join the high ranks of, of British society, you want to become upper class, you want to become successful, you had to have that posh accent as well. So this last point here, this this idea about this uh, society having this, this holding this uh, sort of uh, attaching the idea of success with the posh accent, it's important to, to his story for two reasons. The first being that this, is idea, this idea was what led to the mixing of the Cockney and posh accents uh, what what Morton described as half Cockney, half Queen, and particularly if you if you if you listen to the the podcast, he would tell you about how his grandmother during the war days he would listen to he would listen to the radio and you know the British royalty or people from authority or the BBC they would only use the posh accent. So when you constantly listen to to members of royalty or members of upper, upper class society speaking in this posh accent naturally if you if you were growing up with the cockney accent and you wanted to sort of enter that society you would kind of mix as well so that's that so he he kind of figured that that's where the mixing sort of happened so and then secondly uh, important to his story is that this may be the reason as to what led morton to abandon his cockney accent to adopt a more posh one right so now some of you thinking <laughs> might be thinking, you know, we're talking about accents here, right? And you know, such a case might be inconsequential in the long run in the backdrop of economic growth. Certainly, you know, there are a lot more pressing things or pressing uh, concerns that we have uh, uh, when, when we when we talk about economic growth than say uh, a, a lost accent or a lost bit of identity, but. There are some key economic points that I wanna I wanna try and take away from this, and the first of which is, firstly, economic costs may not always be tangible. So what I mean by this is that 
of course, when, when I mentioned earlier, you think about uh, trade-offs in economics or when you think about you know, what you're, what you're selling, selling out or what you're giving up for economic growth is sort of like, a, like an exchange, right? If you're buying a can of Coke, you have to give money for it, right? But in the case of economic growth or in the case of economic in, economics in general, these costs may not always be tangible. So not always money, not always labor, not always time, you know, not even uh, lost jobs, right? So this is evidence clearly of the case that, you know, the producer Morton, what he gave up in search of economic opportunity was a part of his identity or culture. Or of course, oh, oh sorry, I, I, feel, I feel to mention that throughout the episode, he was speaking in a posh accent as well, but he was longing for uh, this sort of lost Cockney accent or the lost half Cockney, half posh accent, right? So so this sometimes, this, uh, you know, ha- since these economic costs are not always tangible, it can sometimes be a little problematic because it is difficult to weigh the, the, the benefits and costs if you cannot properly measure the value of some intangible property. And certainly in this case, you know, he, what, what, what the producer lost was a, was a part of his history and a part of his past. And how do, how, how do you really put a value to that? And if, if, if in the future you're thinking about pursuing some other goal and you want to consider what consequ- consequences uh, it might have, how, how do you really measure? You know, if you say, oh, uh, in order to take a job, I have to dress this way. How is this going to affect my life? And is this going to affect uh, my, my identity or part of my identity? It's really difficult to sort of balance out the costs, uh, the benefits and costs to make this uh, sort of decision, right? Right, so that's the first point, uh, talking about economic costs not always being tangible. So next, by sort of a, little bit of a little bit of an extension, economic costs may not always be immediately apparent. Right. So oftentimes costs such as the loss or some tradition or custom are not considered really in the present because they tend to be borne out over decades and generations. Right. So, so even in the case of uh, the, the, the story with, uh, with uh, the producer Morton, the Cockney accent is not lost yet, but it is losing touch. Uh, people are slowly, slowly moving away, moving away. They're, they're, they're adopting the posh accent over the more traditional uh, Cockney accent. He even mentions in the episode the how newer cast members of the prop of the popular TV show East Enders, how even they are using the posh accent over the more traditional Cockney accent these days. So what is important to note here as well is that you know they are rarely the direct intention of the people striving for economic growth. I mean, certainly in this case. Morton, when he was striving to to give up his, uh, was sorry, when he was striving for economic prosperity, when he was, you know, maybe he he just graduated from school and he was out there looking for a job in the media. So he thought to himself, okay, uh, you know, people in the BBC or people on Sky TV, you know, these guys they speak with uh, posh accents. So if I want a job there, I think it better be, it, it might be best for me to, to sort of use this, uh, use this accent. But it didn't. I don't think it really dawned on him then that he'll be giving up this sort of a part of his identity in the long run, right? Certainly that wasn't his direct intention, but uh, it was sort of a, a result or a casualty uh, of his pursuit for his uh, economic dreams, right? So that's the second second uh, point that I wanted to bring, bring across that, you know, economic costs are not always apparent and they're not always direct in this manner. 
So the third point and the last point I want to bring about with, uh, in relation to this case, this particular case, is that the loss of custom or tradition is more so the aggregate of individual decisions and not really the action of one institute. So in this case, if the Cockney accent were to die completely, uh, were to be were to completely die out one day, as you know, Morton himself admits, or some of the people he interviews, they too admit themselves, it would be because some it it, it would not be because some company or someone said specifically that they were going to wipe out the accent. But rather, I think it would be because that no one would be left to continue practicing it. So in that sense, if you are lamenting the loss of some custom or see some media piece talking about how this tradition is extinct today, I don't think it would be you know, very fruitful to sort of seek blame on some, some, some government entity or some big firm or some ideas such as such as capitalism, because I think if, if, you're, if you're trying to do this, you're really just taking an easy cop-out. You're not really holding all, all the individuals responsible who made all the, all the decisions to sort of adopt a new custom or adopt a new way of life uh, to, to, give, to give up what they, what they used to practice, right? So in reality, uh, these individuals, they behaved the way they did and made the decisions they made because they saw an incentive to better their own economic circumstances. So they made their own decisions. They said, oh, hey, this, uh, if, if I behave this way, it will be better than if I behaved a previous way. So in Morton's case, he might have thought, you know, in order to secure a job at the BBC, in order to, to start writing for them or to start uh, producing for them, I have to start talking in a broad, posh accent because it, because it is a more palatable, because it is more appealing to a wider audience, right? And, you know, you come, come and think about it. If you put yourself in their shoes, wouldn't you do the same thing, right? Instead of sitting, instead of you know, uh, sitting there from the comfort of a chair or in your on your moral high horse, you know, you know, uh, blaming some some big figure or or pointing the finger at, at these individuals, wouldn't you do the same thing if you're in their shoes? You know, if if you're in Morton's shoes and your family and your friends all hold this belief that sort of the the posh accent is a uh, is is, is grants you more better economic opportunities than this uh, Cockney accent, or that high society looks down on Cockney accents, you know, w- w- wouldn't you change your accent as well, if, as well if you wanted to improve your lot or better your economic conditions? You know, I, I, I mean, certainly you can, you can say, okay, they were responsible, but this is sort of like the, 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 the capitalist way, right? This is sort of the one way that we sort of you know, air quotes here, sell out for economic growth or self-improvement or prosperity is that we make our own decisions and then we forego sort of previous behaviors or we make or we adjust our own behavior to what we think will, will, will better our own circumstances. So if you think about this, in the long run, when enough people do this, enough people make this decision to sort of switch out and sort of sort of do one behavior over another, the past tradition dies out since you know no one continues to practice this. Of course, I understand in real life maybe there there are gonna be there is still gonna be a whole subset of people or a whole group of people in East and London or maybe scattered throughout uh, England. You know, uh, a lot of people who who who, who speak uh, in an accent different from just a posh accent. And certainly, I am not denying that fact at all. But what I'm what I'm saying 
is that in the future, if you if if one day the whole of whole of England, the whole of Britain were to be speaking in the posh accent, you know, you 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 might want to consider this this fact that they made their decision, that they considered this idea, and it was this perception and sort of uh, their their own incentives that led them to make the switch, led all these people to make the switch, and ultimately for this custom to sort of die out, right? So. To close out this uh, this case and this point, I want to look at another example. So uh, I recently watched a documentary. They were talking about the the uh, the Mosuo Mosuo uh, ethnic group in the Yunnan province in China. Right. So they they're kind of unique in that they are the last standing matriarchal matriarchal society in China today. So the documentary I watched, they were talking about you know kind of the roles and responsibilities that women play. Uh, in their daily lives, they're not a very particularly uh, developed uh, uh, society. They're, they're still they're still very much in a rural town. Many people are still farming day to day. They 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 still have to do their own housework. They don't have a lot of the the maybe the niceties or the nice amenities that that maybe people in urban settings take for granted today. However, what was noteworthy to me from an economic standpoint, and what is particularly uh, sort of um, relevant to this to the point that I'm trying to make here with uh, Morton and his uh, story about accents is that some of the elders, they have a worry that, you know, this matriarchal society or their practice won't be around much longer because the younger generation, you know, the younger generation of girls, they prefer to go out to China to look for economic, better economic opportunities elsewhere. So think about it again, if you were in their shoes and, you know, in, the, in these days in China, we, we, we mentioned it, right? 55% of them hold this, uh, have a smartphone. So even people in this, uh, this uh, farming village, they have a smartphone. If you, were on, if you were on a smartphone, you were on WeChat, you were seeing all these big celebrities or all these big cities, all these big cities where have, they have tons of jobs, tons of economic opportunities, wouldn't you want, if, if you wanted to try and, and, and make, make, something, make something better of your life and improve your condition, wouldn't you try and go out and do that? All right, so that, that's enough for the first, first case, right? So let's move on to the second case. So the second case I want to look at today is uh, it's from a recent Wall Street Journal article. It's, re- it's written by Jenny Gross, and this is a little quirk. Uh, I find it's a little quirky article, but I thought it would be useful to pull out some economic threads out of this. So it involves uh, Brit- Britain as well. So this one, this article was titled, Britain's Next Pressing Question, Paper or Parchment? So listen to this, all right? So in this article, Jenny Gross reports how British law- lawmakers have recently voted in favor of replacing traditional parchment instead of paper for record keeping. Now, this custom of using parchment has been around from medieval, th- medieval times, where British Parliament would record activities and laws on sheep and goat skins, and since 1849, they have used vellum, a fine calfskin. However, uh, sort of kind of kind of expectedly, vellum is going to cost a lot more to produce, right? And in in the in the article, it mentions that it costs roughly about thirty five pounds for an A four size sheet when bought when bought in bulk, including delivery, tax, and printing, versus about sixteen pence for high quality archival paper of the same size. So notably, the report also points out that. While vellum is unquestionably, unquestionably more durable, fire-resistant, and difficult to tear, 
papers stored in the right conditions can last just as well. So therefore, from a practical standpoint, unless the parliamentary archives is poor, are poorly maintained, then there is really no significant benefit to using vellum other than to maintain an established tradition. And I mean, come on, we're talking about, you know, uh, archival recordings here, right? And this is archival recordings of like laws and like events in the past. They're going to be stored in, you know, nice, cool, dark places to ensure that no one goes in and try try and rob them, right? They're not going to be stored out in the open where anyone can just go and slash and burn them or try and steal them. So chances are, uh, if you use paper, they're going to be maintained in a pretty good quality as well. So it's sort of, sort of the benefits uh, of vellum over that are neutralized. So from a practically speaking, there's no, no real difference to using vellum or paper. So, so on this point, similar to the first case, this story involves the loss of a tradition. However, what is different in this instance is that the incentive for change is not so much upward economic improvement, but rather reducing waste in the form of more efficient government spending. So, so what are the sort of economic lessons uh, we can learn from this case? And I think the, the first point that I really want to make here, in particular, and particularly when you want to look at uh, government expenditure or national expenditure, right, is that there is a cost to maintaining outdated traditions. Now, I want to let that sink in a little bit, right? That if you hold a practice, and if there is some other alternative or some other better way of doing things, that you are costing yourself if you maintain that one tradition. So in this case, the cost to maintaining this tradition of using vellum arises because there is a direct substitute, paper, that can perform the same function for record-keeping. Therefore, for the opponents of change who want to maintain the status quo, who want to keep using vellum, who want to maintain the tradition, it is important to recognize what this cost entails. So the article notes that the House of uh, Lords, one of their spokes, the spokeswomen, so she came out and said that the, deci the decision to switch the paper would save at least 80,000 pounds uh, a, a year. So, you know, because this is a national expense, so this is going to be funded by tax dollars, right? These are going to be contributed from uh, British citizens, their income tax payments or their, you know, capital gains tax payments or their pension or, or, or their whatever, whatever tax that the government collects. This is, this is what they're going to be used to, to pay for all these um, national expenses or government expenditures. So if we take this 80,000 sum and divide it by the British population figure, so it was about 65 million or so in 2017, we get a minuscule savings of about, you know, 0 0.0012 pence. So about 12% of one pence. So in actuality, the marginal savings for each individual is minuscule. Or at least it would not be a difficult to continue this tradition uh, at the cost of 12% of one pence each year, right? So before you go on and think, hey, Danny, come on, you know, 12% of one pence per year, surely uh, each, each British citizen can afford, can afford that so, so that, you know, they can continue using vellum and continue their, their tradition, right? So what's, what's all the big, big fuss about, right? So, but however, we, we, we should also consider, you know, as a cost to, as a cost, 
the other avenues which the 80k or the 80,000 in savings could have been allocated to, right? So, so perhaps maybe some country roads could use repairing, uh, some hospitals that are severely understaffed could use more people, some schools could use new facilities. You know, 80,000 is not a lot to do, you know, big, big, uh, big changes on an infrastructure scale, but it is not little as well. You can certainly make uh, some difference and maybe in some local communities here and there. So in this in this sense, right, when you're when you're considering the sort of the cost of maintaining this tradition, it should not only consist of this twelve percent of one pence per British citizen, but you also you should also consider what value is lost when you forego you know improving some public good, providing some extra staff, you know improving some some educational facilities. Uh, with this 80,000, if you instead uh, use this 80,000 there, then to maintain this tradition of using vellum instead of paper. So that's the first point uh, that I want to talk about in this case. So let's talk about the second point. So the second point here, and this is going to be this is going to this is going to be a little counterpoint that kind of kind of thought out is that we have to be careful to pick our battles. So the main idea behind this is that to remind ourselves that ultimately we are human and that being human means values, valuing and cherishing customs and practices that would that we consider, you know, that would be considered wasteful in economics, right? Morton valued his identity or his past or his history and that there therefore he, he went out and made a whole podcast episode about looking for some uh, half cockney half uh, half uh, queen accent. And certainly in this case, uh, the British lawmakers, they value this tradition of using vellum uh, to, to record all their activities, right? So by way of example, some, some example closer to home, uh, National Day Parade here, right? It's a big, big custom uh, that we practice. It involves a hefty amount of resources. You think about, think about the millions of dollars that we spend on meals and costumes and gift bags and you know choreography as well as well as the you know and fireworks and stuff like that and all the equipment and all the lighting and all uh, as well as the hundreds if not thousands of hours of volunteers devoting their time to rehearsing and performing you think about you think about the the the, the first point that I brought up what is the cost of maintaining maintaining tradition right so where could have we, 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 you know, these hundreds of thousands of hours, all these resources, they could have been better used elsewhere. But, you know, the, 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 the economic point here, the, the point that I want to try to make of this, with this, we have to be careful to pick our battles, is that while, while an economist, may, while an economist might point out that these resources could be better used in other ventures that could provide, you know, so much more value to society, it is a really important event for citizens and for, you know, sort of the government to reinforce our deeply held values, our deeply held beliefs, and to preserve this sort of unifying identity uh, uh, as a Singaporean. So therefore, if, if we were to remove this parade, th there would have far-reaching consequences that could, could end up being far more negative than what we could have saved or what kind of value we have attained. So the, the, the earlier point I brought up, there was, it, it is difficult to, to sort of put a value to all these uh, these customs, these traditions. So when, when we want to think about foregoing a custom or foregoing a tradition, we want to be careful and pick our battles 
we sort of don't want to bite bite off more than we we can chew, right? We don't want to be uh, asking for for too much or 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 doing something that we we we, we might end up regretting uh, in the long run. So this value, uh, th- th- sorry, this sorry, this point was uh, brought up in an article by in in this article by calligrapher Patricia Lovett, right? So she 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 advocates for the use of vellum. And she fears the decision to switch to paper might be a sort of precedent for future changes. So she says here, open quote, open quotes, uh, we send a queen in a coach drawn by horses in a crown to open parliament. If you put a bottom line on everything as accountants would do, she'd go to parliament in a taxi in an ordinary frock. Close quotes. All right, so that's the... That's the second point I want to talk about uh, for the second case. And that sort of wraps up the second case. Now I'm going to move on to this third case now. And this third case is going to be a little bit more familiar, a little bit more sort of mainstream in line with what people talk about when they, they talk about the cost of, uh, of uh, environmental growth. So in this last case, we're going to be touching on one of the biggest victims of economic growth, one, at least one of the biggest perceived victims. And that is, of course, the environment. So notably, uh, if you go through any, if you go through and flip through the Bloomberg or Wall Street Journal or any news news outlet, China and India are gonna be some of the most prominent figures uh, on this front. With these two nations being the most populous in the world, as well as them experiencing tremendous economic growth in recent years. So. For this uh, point on uh, environmental damage and in the face of economic growth, I looked at two YouTube videos touching on this topic. So this first, uh, this first video, this one is touching on India. So this one is a story covered by ITV News. So the reporter uh, Alok Jha, he's a, he's a science correspondent. So he, no- he was noting how the urban development of the city of uh, Hyderabad has cut the water supply for a local river. Uh, to to where 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 villages would use for drinking or washing. So they sort of uh, they sort of dug up the area or cut off like this one of the water uh, the water sources that this river used to have, and then uh, they they in, in place of that they built they they you know they brought in a lot of this they they, they piled on a bunch of soil they they built they built offices they built factories they built residences and. The river over time, because it lacked a water source, it dried up, and the villagers, they they, they were accustomed to using this uh, water source. They didn't ha- they don't have them now, and elsewhere. So this is this and and so that's the first video. The second video uh, that I looked at uh, was um, there was this special correspondent for PBS NewsHour. The reporter's name is Jeffrey K. So he was he was reporting in China about how in meeting ambitious economic growth targets set by the government, places such as Guangzhou in the Guangdong province, they are consuming tons of energy and tons of resources to for the industrial industrial manufacturing activity. So this results ultimately in polluted rivers and smoggy cities. So by some estimates, China today is the largest producer of carbon emissions in the world due to the insistence on the use of cheap energy sources such as coal. So these are not uh, sort of hidden or more isolated 
uh, narrative. Certainly, if you've been paying attention to the news at all, you 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 definitely heard about these sort of uh, these these sort of environmental damage being done in the face of economic growth. So, what economic lessons can we learn here from China and India? So, is there a point of pollution that we should never exceed for the sake of prosperity, or? In a sort of weird way, I'm going to try and play devil's advocate here. Can pollution be justified? So the first point I wanted to bring up here is that we should never really underestimate the power of incentives. So before I want before before I go on on this point, I think it would be good to touch on the concept of externalities because in economics, uh, this is what is this this is the, the the term and the parlance that they use to refer when they talk about sort of the, 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 the environmental damage done by economic growth, right? So in economics, this refers to the consequence of an activity which uh, affects outside parties who did not choose to incur them. So in the case of industrial pollution, this is referred to as a negative externality as it negatively impacts parties other than the producing firm due to its industrial activity. So the thing about negative externalities is that unless explicitly imposed by some authority or government body, the firm does not incur any extra costs for producing it. However, because compliance with government legislation or carbon emission caps is costly, the firm really has to decide between sacrificing profits or risking punishment. So in the case of China, so in the in, in the video uh, Jeffrey K did uh, on on Guangzhou in the Guangzhou province, he interviewed this guy Ma Jun. So he was the director of the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs. So he points out that firms mostly choose to risk punishment, right? Because the enforcement is lax, because the fines were not severe enough. So as a result, these firms. If they're facing constant pressure from their stakeholders, such as their investors, their employer, their employees, or even the government themselves to meet certain targets or, or to you know to achieve some level of growth or profit, this uh the this lax punishment system it, they they have an incentive to continue with their usual industrial uh, activity and continue polluting and or and or sort of not complying with the with the environmental regulation or new environmental standards. Because paying the fines would be cheaper than complying with legislation, so, so this is the this is the, the point here I want to make about um, incentives, is that sometimes, you know, you have to be careful with public policy, with far-reaching public policy. You have to be careful about what kind of incentives that you're setting out, and sort of what kind of consequences that's gonna result in. So in this case, right, there's sort of like an unintended consequence, right? Because they put in this uh, this uh, regulation to sort of curb the the polluting activity or the industrial activity, sort of sort of have them have them uh, adopt better standards, but they didn't enforce it enough, or the or the enforcement or the punishment wasn't lax enough, the incentive wasn't strong enough, or the punishment wasn't severe enough to sort of scare them to to comply. So they 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 looked at the situation and they said, hey, you know. If I continue doing this polluting stuff, or continue using coal, or some of the some of the uh, more less less green ways of uh, manufacturing, uh, it's, it's going to be cheaper than if I comply. It's going to be more efficient for me. It's going to be you know these energy sources are cheaper, more readily available. So, so the incentive for me uh, as a producer is to continue using this way instead of complying. So this is what I mean by to to not underestimate the power power of incentives. 
And to always be careful, especially with public policy, be careful what, what kind of incentives that you're setting and what kind of consequence that's going to lead to. So that's the first point I want to talk about. So the second, second point I want to talk about here is that environmental damage is a necessary evil. So, so, okay, so although this point may be somewhat, you know, obvious in a sense, it serves to remind that economic growth and industrial population are not really new phenomena. However, without the necessary consumption of resources needed to fuel the growth for, for, for economic development, global superpowers such as the United States or England or even Singapore may not be where they are today. So therefore, it is important to, cons- to not only consider the damages that occur through economic growth, but also all the benefits, benefits as well. So the earlier story about Hyderabad, so this presents a really, really good... So I think this, this uh, brings about my point really well. So the developing, the developing part of the city, it attracts uh, investment and companies to set up where they can provide jobs and services that can help out local citizens give them employment, give them a chance to improve their living conditions, offer them, you know, some, some fair wage, right? We can think, you, you can think about, you know, you know, the sort of the, 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 the advent of all these uh, tech firms and all these outsourcing firms pro- uh, providing means for women and skilled laborers to sort of earn better jobs than they had before. So without such development, the, the local economy would be similar or stagnant to the sort of the, the village depicted in the story, where it was sort of rudimentary, it was rural, less developed, and it had little access to, to plumbing or electricity, and again, to all the niceties and amenities that we take for granted today in a sort of more developed, develop, uh, urban or developed economy. They're more cut out from the rest of the world. So this is why, why perhaps in the Hyderabad story, so the correspondent, Alok Jha, he talked to the environment minister for India. So his name is Prakash Javadekar. So he says that, and I quote here, the world has, has exploited and profited from their emissions, comma, and now they cannot put restrictions on me, close comma. So even the environment minister himself is saying that these developed economies, they should not be on a moral high horse to say that India should not be polluting, uh, polluting rivers or polluting or, or doing all these environmental damage because, because they haven't had the chance to experience all that economic growth yet. You know, superpowers such as America or England or even Singapore, they've already gone through this stage of rapid industrial growth and they have reaped the rewards today but india they haven't had the chance to go through that so to 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 go out and say no you should not be polluting you should not be doing this you know you should not be doing that you're not only saying you should not be you you should not be damaging the environment you're also by way saying that you should not you 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 should not have a chance at, at, at you know getting getting a better life or improving uh helping you know your citizens uh, alleviate, uh, helping the local economy alleviate poverty or helping them improve their economic conditions. So, so, th- so that's the, the second point. So that's the end of the second point I want to bring about. And that will, that will wrap up sort of the main bulk of the episode today. It's a little shorter than this, uh, than the first official episode I had. I thought it was a kind of a different approach 
uh, to a through way of doing things. It's sort of a little more interesting. We talk about little different cases, real life cases, and see what kind of economic lessons that I could pull out for there. So to conclude this episode and you know to recap uh, what we have gone through today, uh, individuals and institutions, they sort of sell out for economic prosperity in a number of ways. So accents can be lost when they are not deemed to be helpful in, in accessing high society. Parchments can be foregone if they are a costly alternative. And environmental sanctity can be given up for future development. However, I think it is important to note that the costs alone are not the entire story, nor should economic growth be vilified without looking at the whole picture. So certainly when you consider the benefits that come with economic growth, better opportunities, innovation, higher productivity, and more savings, the entire narrative becomes more nuanced and in some cases, the cost can be justified if growth benefits, if growth benefits or brings value to many other people. So what is unproductive in this case is a narrative that only focuses on the negatives of economic growth. If such a narrative results in the limitation of future growth, the potentials and livelihoods of many developing nations may never be realized, and opportunity for millions of individuals to better their economic conditions denied. To this point, a great irony can be found in the discussion about environmental damage. For I think it is truly remarkable that although China today is still heavily polluted, they are also at the forefront of groundbreaking green initiatives spearheaded by government incentives. For instance, from the article Why China is Dominating the Solar Industry that was, uh, that was reported in the Scientific American, the writer John Fialka he notes that the Chinese government offers support by way of loans and tax credits to incentivize firms to build and manufacture solar panels to meet the rising demand coming from countries such as Europe, uh, countries in Europe such as Germany, Spain, and Italy. So this has led to develop. This has led to development to the to the, the development of the world's largest solar manufacturing industry today, where constant innovation in operations have helped streamline production and lower costs creating a worldwide glut in cheap solar panels, thereby making them more affordable and accessible to many more than ever before. So in other instances, uh, this other writer, Ma Tianjie, so he writes in an article for the China Dialogue websites that China is beginning to see the effects of reforms to economic policy, with air pollution levels and emissions steadily dropping in recent years, though they still remain at dangerously high levels. In fact, some regions have stopped using GDP as, an, as a performance benchmark, and in, provinces, in, and in provinces such as the Jiangxi and Anhui province, natural resource usage is being explicitly measured for audit reports by the government, thereby better aligning the competing interests of economic growth and environmental protection. However, on a final note, I think I should also we should also be careful in having a narrative that only focuses on the positives of economic growth. So certainly in many developed countries, though growing GDP may mean more goods and services for everyone, people also tend to work longer hours and have stressful jobs with you know, poor work-life balances. Singapore in this case is particularly noteworthy, whereas strong social societal emphasis on success pressures workers to work 
pressures individuals to work longer hours to the detriment of their families, friends, and their own well-being. So perhaps on this front, we should take the lead from Bhutan, a landlocked country in the Himalayas who measures prosperity not through GDP, but something called the Gross National Happiness Index, which takes into account the spiritual, physical, social, and environmental health of its citizens in the natural environment. So their example has led the UN, the United Nations, to publish a World Happiness Report that considers a more rounded view of well-being than just simply GDP alone. And from the leader of this year's report, Norway, maybe it sort of shows that a well-balanced economy has to have other elements, including trust, including you know a good work-life balance, including being generous, and including you know, how, how free or the perceived freedom that individuals have. But I think finally, alas, GDP doesn't hurt as well. All right, so thank you for tuning in this week to the Economical Rice Podcast. I've set up a bunch of uh, social media, so if you want to catch up on the latest updates on episodes if you want uh, to, 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 for, for this podcast, uh, you can follow on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just look up Economical Rice. I, I'm sure you'll be able to find there, find it there. Also, there was a bunch of other things and uh, you know different articles that I for, uh, that I didn't go through in this episode for the sake of time. And I, and I can see now it's already it's not going to be a short episode already. Uh, so I'll be posting some blogs or I'll follow up on the material. Uh, on the website www.economicalricepodcast.com so if you want to if you want to continue reading up on the economic growth stuff and it's sort of the cost of that uh, you can catch you can look it up this uh, you can look it up there All right so thank you again for for tuning in this week I hope you're tuning in tuning in tune in again next week thank you and goodbye